1: Welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. You join us on a sunny June day in the early 1950s. Unremarkable English village just inside the commuter belt at a gathering full of wealthy professionals, the kind who change into tweed at weekends, and older villagers who tuck quietly to themselves as the village's new and somewhat controversial writer's centre is about to be opened. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really
0: want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Dickon Edwards. Hello, Dickon Edwards. Hello. Hello Thank you Dickon. for inviting me. Thank Thanks you for coming in. Uh, Dickon is a London based writer, dandy, occasional DJ, and erstwhile musician. In the 1990s and 2000s, he toured and released albums with the bands Orlando and Fosca. He has kept an online diary. The Diary at the Centre of the Earth since 1997, and in 2017, it was recognised as the longest running of its kind yeah. by the Centre for Life Writing Research at King's College London. Yeah. Well, well done. done. Do you call it a blog, or do you prefer <laughs> not to call it a blog?
2: I think a blog is interactive. Uh, it, it predates blogs. In fact, the word blog was coined after I started the diary. So,
0: it's amazing. Yeah and what's changed if you can say in a, in a, it's a silly question really but when you started doing it presumably nobody else was doing
2: no i had to write it in raw html code might have learned how to Amazing. write, how to, wow. you know, with all the tags and so on. 1997. Uh, you've
1: never, you've never written it in, into on a handwritten a, <laughs> a, a diary in that sort of old. I do school. that as well. You That's, do it as I well. I do a
2: handwritten diary from which I then do the ah, more public extract.
1: We we had uh, uh, we published Sally Bailey, who's been a guest on the podcast, did a wonderful book called The Private Life of the Diary, which is oh, a I've little, read it actually. Yes. Yeah, it's so interesting, and I'm glad you said that about blogs. The diary, I think, is a bit more shaped,
2: isn't it? I it's, was inspired by. D- Public diaries. I just love diaries yeah. as a form, anyway. From you know, from Joe Wharton to Alan Bennett to Virginia Woolf yeah, to yeah, yeah. Samuel Pepys.
0: It's just... also blogs have risen and fallen. Yeah, I reckon and they have. And you're still
2: here. Yeah. Well, they called Twitter microblogging when it started. I just forgotten that.
0: Remember that mm-hmm. microblogging? They called it many things they when it started. It, they called <laughs> it many things. Since 2011, Dickens has moved into academia, acquiring a BA in English Literature, an MA in Contemporary mm. Literature and Culture, and winning the prize for the best student on both courses. Yeah, yes. uh, you, you swat. Well, uh, <laughs> he is currently balancing freelance art journalism <laughs> with researching for a PhD at Birkbeck. Yep. University of London, and his PhD topic is Ronald Furbank and the Legacy of Camp Modernism. (laughs) Marvellous. I'm sure Furbank's going to come up in the discussion One would hope. The book that
1: Dickon is here to talk about is Hemlock and After, the first novel by Angus Wilson, published by Sekren Warburg originally in 1952.
0: It's funny doing Angus Wilson on backlisted. I'm sure we. I'm sure when we first sat you down very, about backlisted, right at the beginning, it's on we, my list. Angus Wilson would have been one of the names on the list. It's, it, it's surprising that it took so long. Right
1: to up get there to with uh, William Golding's *The Inheritors*, which we still not
0: managed to find anyone to. And Barbara Pym and Elizabeth Taylor. Yeah. Anyway, you have mentioned
2: a story by Angus Wilson before in one of your Christmas editions of
0: backlisted. We did *Christmas Day at the Workhouse*, which is set though nobody would have known this or few people would have realised this at the time, is set at Bletchley Park during the Second World War where Wilson worked, and we'll talk about that when we get on to it. But that is a magnificent story, Christmas Day at the Workhouse. I think I said on the episode, I read it and then I read it again because, like the best of Wilson's short stories, the punches never land where you think they're going to land. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So the first time you read it, you're kind of mapping out the terrain, and then the second it's... time you read it, I think you're enjoying the terrain. Anyway, we'll, we'll come on to that. John, before we move to Angus Wilson, what have you been reading this week? Well, one of the things I'm trying to do this year in
1: my relentless quest for self-improvement is to read more books in translation. It's my own personal post-Brexit, pre-Brexit, during Brexit, if Brexit ever happens, even if it doesn't happen. The engagement with literatures from other countries is something I feel we should be doing more of generally because there's some amazing books and they don't, as we know, tend to get translated. And if they do get translated, they don't tend to get the coverage. So I'm going to try through the year to keep a pile of books in translation the book I wanted to talk about, what is a book in translation, it's a book called Sweet for Barbara Loden by Nathalie Léger. It's the winner of the 2016 Scott Moncrief Prize. It's published by one of the most, I think, interesting and original independent publishers in the UK, Les Fugitives, which is essentially a one-woman uh, publishing operation. Uh, Cécile Menon, who is one of the translators of the book, Sweet for Barbara Loden, I'm talking about. But Les Fugitives, published only from French, and almost entirely women. This book is a curious, very French, one-off, I guess, kind of prose meditation on the need to create. It's Barbara Loden was an American actress who uh, was married for a while to Elia Kazan, classic kind of uh, Hollywood background. She, she started as a, as a sort of a chorus girl. She then became an actress and then in, in 1970, she made, directed and wrote a film called Wonder, which has become a kind of a cult American underground film. It was never really released properly at the time. She died, tragically, at the age of uh, 46, 47 in 1978. Um, but she starred in the film Wonder, And this book started with Natalie Legere being charged to write a short entry on Barbara Loden for a film encyclopaedia. And she starts and she becomes completely obsessed with... So what happens is a sort of Seiboldian, Parekian journey of her attempting to write this short paragraph about Barbara Lund becoming obsessed and travelling to America and going to all the original locations for the film. She's a meditation on her own relationship with her mother. It's, I think, a brilliant short book. It's a meditation on women. The film was hated by feminists at the time. It's, it's about women and creativity and authenticity. It's wonderfully well written and brilliantly translated.
0: That, That's won a prize, that book, hasn't it?
1: It's won the Scott Moncrief Prize, but it also won a prize in France, Prix de Livre Inter, 2012, voted by readers across France. And she is impossibly French in that she's a novelist, <laughs> but she's also a curator. And she's created two shows at the Pompidou Centre, one on Roland Barthes and the other one on
0: Samuel Beckett. Ah, very good. <laughs> and one on Jerry Lewis. That won the Scott Moncrief uh, prize, which yeah. was, of course, one of the judges for this year's Scott Moncrief Prize, one of the people who uh, awarded the prize to sweep the Barbara of Loden, was our guest last time, Dr Patterson. Oh, great. So it's, if you don't believe John, do believe Ian. Andy,
1: what have you been reading?
0: What have I been reading this week? I've been reading, I don't know if you've heard of her, it's a writer called Jane Austen. Ah, oh, yes. Um, she the, was the, the Jilly Cooper of her day, she was she was not? the Jilly Cooper of her day. She was known only as a lady, though. A lady, lady yeah. yeah. It's the fourth of the ladies' books that I've read over the years. I've read... The Emma. Bath Bonk Buster, isn't it? <laughs> I've read Emma, Pride and Prejudice and Persuasion, and I've written about Jane Austen. Yeah. And I've said in my writing about Jane Austen, that I don't really... I'm not, I'm not mad about Jane Austen, but whenever, whenever I mention this, I usually get in trouble and people get cross with me. I once had um, a very uh, um, well-respected publisher. I had an interview in a trade magazine in which I said, "Oh, well, I said something, you know, flippant about Pride and Prejudice, along the lines of if anybody said what they meant in Pride and Prejudice, then the whole book would be <laughs> over by page three. <laughs> and uh, I met uh, this. The same
1: uh, could be said for normal people.
0: It, indeed. Well, I met this. Hmm. I met this 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 respectable publisher at a party, and she said to me, "I've never, I shall never forgive you for what you said about Pride and Prejudice," and that has twenty five years on proved to be the case. <laughs> as far as i know anyway so i've read north abbey gothic well it's a parody of the gothic novel mm-hmm. and in jane austen's work it's almost but not quite seen as juvenilia, and it's seen as not being as sophisticated as the later novels yeah, yeah. now i have a, a view on that <laughs> which is that It's very funny. Yeah. It's far and away the funniest of the novels by Jane Austen that I've read. And as ever, as you will know, regular listeners will know, I have a chip on my shoulder and a bee in my bonnet about the way the literary world devalues writing that is actually funny as opposed to, quote, unquote, wickedly amusing, i.e. not funny. And Austen falls exactly into this category where there is a sense that the broader, and let's be honest, we're not talking broad here, the broader humour of Northanger Abbey somehow disqualifies it from being taken as seriously as persuasion. And there is, I can see that argument, but at the same time, I can also see an institutional dislike of prose that makes people laugh.
1: It's one of the reasons I always defend Pickwick, which gets the same kind of slightly... Faint praise. Faint praise. But actually, that to make people laugh with words is almost the hardest thing of all.
0: Now, normally, I would read uh, a bit of um, the featured book, but I don't think anybody really wants to hear me read Jane Austen. <laughs> and also, I probably, I probably can't do justice to it. But what, what I have got is a, just a paragraph from an essay called Conflicts in Jane Austen's Novels by the writer angus wilson ah and wilson was of course we'll come on to the various achievements of his life but one of the things that he was was a a bibliophile tremendously well read a lecturer wrote published books on zola on dickens uh, and kipling as well so very much an expert view and i think the text of this essay was originally a lecture He's just been talking about how Jane Austen is seen by, in his words, uh, he starts with Virginia Woolf and then he moves on to Anglicans, materialists, Marxists, vitalists, quietists and sceptics. And then he talks about Austen's reputation in the period that he was writing. I read this earlier and just thought, well, this is as true uh, today as it was 50 years ago. So Angus Wilson on Jane Austen. Ever since Victorian critics, rightly impressed by her comic genius, murmured Shakespearean comic characterization with the same breath that they treated of her limited range, a curious dual process has gone on of proclaiming aloud Jane Austen's small world and at the same time nudging her into the ranks of the very few greatest masters of the novel. The motives for such promotion by stealth are very clear (laughs) – her extraordinary intelligence appeals to the many critics for whom intelligence is the first necessity of greatness. Her undaunted inner warmth compels admiration because of the rare sincerity with which its limits are announced. The pioneer complexity of her artistry demands recognition from every discerning reader. Above all, the pioneer complexity of her irony demands tribute from the vast army who now judge the novel by Jamesian canons, Henry James, a tribute given with an added piquant, rebellious flavour because the master himself failed to rise above the less discerning standards of his time in his judgment of her. Let me add to all these respectable reasons that her wonderful entertainment is a lawful feast today for those who are under vows to deny themselves such fare. In short... Jane Austen's charm, always so potent among certain middle-brow readers, operates quite as effectively among kindred spirits of higher intellectual pretensions, and to this must be added a natural desire among Anglo-Saxon critics to advance the international claims of a first-class English writer who largely resists translation, and a wish, in my opinion, less respectable to canonise the foundress of the religion of the English novel, meaning by that religion a regard for all the qualities which the English novel does not share with the great novels of other countries. Now that is a spectacular summation of critical perspectives on Jane Austen. And it also takes into account the thing that I like best about Northanger Abbey, as I tend to like most about all my favourite books. Northanger Abbey is a book about books and a book about reading. I mean, if this is the thing that Austen does in her other novels, Pride and Prejudice is a book about books and reading. But Northanger Abbey, Mm -hmm. in terms of its engagement with the reader, consistently saying to the reader, you're only reading a novel. We've all read novels, but reading novels is not perhaps a a great activity, or is it? There's a fabulous phrase in here, um, no novel reader. Uh, which was later picked up by Colin McInnes, my great favourite Colin McInnes, for a, a long essay that he wrote about the attractions and um, uh, problems of reading novels in the nineteen fifties. Mm. Dickon, I what, know that yeah. you have something to say about Northanger Abbey.
2: Well, one of the most quoted lines about reading fiction is in Northanger Abbey. It's it's only a novel. And she says, oh, it's a little something. She goes into what's only... Mm-hmm. I haven't got the quote in front of me. Maybe I was hoping you were going to read it. I have but got it. But it is really well known as in A Great Defence of Reading Novels, and it comes from Northanger Abbey. And it is probably, I would say... I think, actually, if you look on goodreads.com, under <laughs> Jane Austen quotes, it is the number one the quote number one from quote. Jane Austen. Yeah. It's from Northanger Abbey.
0: It's in Chapter 5, listeners. Right. And it sort of starts, if a rainy morning deprive them of other enjoyments they were still resolute in meeting in defiance of wet and dirt and shut themselves up to read novels together. Right. Yes, novels. Yes. And <laughs> off she goes for a full two pages in on. a kind of perfectly poised fulmination about the, uh, how novels are as worthy as any other form of literature.
2: And it's about the idea of novels being bad for you, and so she's mm. defending it. This is the Jane Austen who hasn't written Pride and Prejudice yet.
1: It's- I know, I love that. And the whole an- anonymousness of her during her lifetime is fascinating. I, I have told this story. I don't know whether I've told it on the podcast before, but I, one of the, my early breakthroughs for the idea of crowdfunding is that the only place in print that Jane Austen's name appears is Miss J. Austen as one of the subscribers listed in the front of uh, a Fanny Burney novel. can't remember which one it is now, but uh, she was in an early... And uh, There's something about that idea right at the beginning of... Or, Near the beginning of the novel, that crowdfunding was always being was still being used as a as a legitimate way of of, um,
0: of enabling writers to write the books they wanted to read. So, anyway, right. we've that's, we've done that now. We've done Jane Austen on backlisted. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you prefer it to the other ones then? Do I do I prefer? <laughs> because because I do the, I do I? Well,
2: <laughs> yes. No Jane Austen fan will say that's the best Jane Austen novel.
0: Well, I'm not a Jane Austen fan, no. so I, I float free. Because uh, she
2: hasn't quite found her voice yet. It's early Jane Austen when she's just defending the art of reading novels and joking about gothic novels.
0: But it's also, it's written by a 25-year-old. Yeah. You know, it's it's incredibly, what's the word I want? Nimble. That's what I kept thinking when I was reading it. There's such brilliant switchbacks in tone and mm. in subject. And mm. also, i use used this phrase actually... Um, I think with Lawrence, in the Lawrence episode, or in, and probably this is the third episode in the Roman News, it's true, there's a lovely sense of somebody making it up as they go along. You know, the novel you, has not been overplanned. The novel is, sit down, what yep. shall I write about today? What's going to make me laugh? What's going to yes, make my readers that's laugh?
2: what I thought I was going to say about, you, you you talk about the idea of books which make you laugh. Now, you know those, no, those kind of spin-off novels which came out about 10 years ago, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, yes. and Sense yes. and Sensibilities and Werewolves, or whatever Yes. Yeah. Well, she beat them to it with Northanger Abbey. Yeah. This is Jane Austen doing the <laughs> Gothic novel before she became right. Jane Austen. Yeah. Before yeah. she wrote Pride and Prejudice and Sens- Sensibility, she, she did this novel which takes her mickey out of the Gothic genre, like Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. She, was, she had that idea before everyone else had that idea. And So if you think you don't know Jane Austen or you don't find her funny enough, you should read Northanger Abbey.
1: And whatever, you know, making a perhaps tenuous link with Julie cooper i mean you know you can't Julie cooper's unimaginable without jane austen i think just because she invented that she invented that how is it going to turn out how is this character going to end up with that character i mean i am a jane austen fan and i do i particularly like mansfield park fanny price who is not everybody's favorite jane austen character but i i just think she created something that was unimprovable, actually, in the end. I don't think anybody's done it better than she's done it. Whether you want to call them romances or whatever you want to call them, just call them novels. That's what she calls them.
0: Jane Austen requires no special pleading from she us. She does. But, <laughs> but Northanger Abbey probably does. And, and I am saying, and I you, am loving you that you are slightly Austin phobic then what, Northanger Abbey is a great I think that's think that's, that's what Backlisted is for. It's brilliant. Now, here are our sponsors telling you what to do. Let's move on to the main event. Hemlock and After by Angus Wilson. This was Angus Wilson's first novel. Published uh, 1952 or 3? 52, 52. 52. 52 and, and set in 51. <clears throat> and set in 51. Written in, in, 51 and 51. Written in four weeks I outside. I think like NaNoWriMo. I, I'm going, before, <laughs> yes. I ask, before I ask Dick the, the, the magic question that we, we always ask, I, I would like to just say, before we started recording, I was saying to everybody that we prepared for the D.H. Lawrence episode and that was a, a piece of work and we prepared for the Ginny Cooper episode and that was a very enjoyable piece of work. I could prepare for this episode forever. Absolutely, I would. The joy of of mm. digging into Angus Wilson's life and work for for me personally has been one of the most eye opening things because what? of Wilson's reputation compared with Wilson's work is one of so as wide apart as you could possibly possibly be. Um, I think. And we will we will spend <laughs> quite a bit of time talking about that and gap. I went into reading this book feeling it was obscure but maybe interesting i came out of reading and thinking about it convinced that it is the missing link in the british novel of the 1950s and it's a disgrace Mm. a disgrace that this book isn't much better known for reasons that we'll talk about i mean you know, the, the, the interesting thing is it was,
1: it was certainly seen as that at the time. John Osborne said, you know, there'd been this 10 years where the English had basically gone to sleep and this book came out and was a scandal, but it was also
0: a brilliant epoch-making novel for all kinds of reasons. Mm. We should just say that Angus Wilson is very significant in the joint life of myself and my colleague John Mitchinson because we think the first time we ever met was at an event at Waterstones in Earl's Court in 1992 to mark the republication by Penguin of Angus Wilson's back catalogue. Because I was the events coordinator at that shop and John was the marketing director of Waterstones at that point. And what was remarkable for me for the event is that our guest speaker was Tim Waterstone. Which as the founder and at that point boss of Waterstone, so it was quite an anxious evening.
1: Just to give you the, the full focus pull on that, Tim introduced me to Angus Wilson. He is the least read of, I think, genuinely great twentieth-century novelists that I know. And Tim Waterstone came to me and said, "Have you read any Angus Wilson?" He said, "I love Angus Wilson. We must do something about. Him. How could we do something about Angus Wilson? I mean, we must be able to help Angus." He was, I think. If he wasn't, maybe he'd just died. He had just died. Ninety-one. He died. died, Yeah. So anyway, how do you get a writer like Angus Wilson to be read? So we came up with the idea of Waterstones. Each month, we'd choose a book called the Waterstones Book of the Month. And rather perversely, we didn't choose because we thought we couldn't choose a backlist book. But we chose Nicholas Mosley's Hopeful Monsters, which is slightly in the Angus Wilson sort of vein Mm, of kind of big. Novels taking on history, taking on social mores, taking in with, a, with a huge range of characters. But I discovered through Tim, I discovered Angus Wilson and read in a short order Anglo-Saxon attitudes, Late Call. I mean, I think my favorite is No Laughing Matter, but I didn't read Hemlock and After. So this has been the most brilliant re, <laughs> re kind of uh, re-engagement with Angus Wilson, who I still have to say is he's still not properly in print. I'm sorry to say that, faber fines but he isn't. There are many, many writers from the 1950s who are
0: less good, I think, who are. So, so Dickens. So, Dickon, when did you first read Hemlock and After or Angus Wills?
2: I was in a library. <laughs> <laughs> I just enrolled as a mature student at Birkbeck University of London and they have a wonderful library there and they have a very good range of of all the novels that you might expect to study at, at a degree level. And I think I was near the war section. I was looking at all the even Wars and all the Wolf as well, all the Virginia Wolfs, and quite close to both authors was Angus Wilson. And I I, I was intrigued. And he did seem to be one of those names that seems to fill up library shelves. <laughs> <laughs> he <says> he, <laughs> books do
0: furnish a room, and Angus Wilson books furnish second-hand <laughs> bookshops. They really do.
2: And I pulled out As If By Magic, actually.
0: One of the late
1: problematic books.
2: Yeah. And I dipped into it and I thought, this is interesting. (laughs) And I thought, I don't know anything about this this writer. And then I started doing my research into camp and camp literature. I realised that Hemlock and After, the debut novel, is in the timeline of books which mention the word camp before Susan Susan Sontag did in 1964. Mm, mm. And I'm fascinated with the word camp. And so I, um, I thought I'd, I'd read Hemlock and After, it. and then I also like Alan Hollinghurst. Ah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: And I love the idea of of, uh, of writing about gay lives in a commercial literary novel aimed at everyone. So, uh, gay lives for,
0: for everyone, basically, not 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 gay books for gay people. Yes, 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 absolutely. Well, that's one of the things we I, we will we will introduce the the. Um we'll tell people what the novel is about in a moment um but we so have... I
2: learnt, when i i learned a bit more about angus watson and that that led me on to hemlock uh, and Arthur. so by the time i got into studying camp and gay literature mm-hmm. and and i also did an ma uh, thesis on on alan hollinghurst that <laughs> then led me to angus watson well, uh, but mainly to ask why is he missing why well, is he we left will, out yeah. yes.
0: we will uh, we explore the reasons for that i think We've got several clips of Angus Wilson talking and John and I were communicating earlier and I'm already rubbing my hands in (laughs) glee because I know what's coming up. The first one is a clip, I think he's talking in the 1960s here, talking about Hemlock and After and he's talking about how he came to write the book.
3: I was still at the British Museum and I was... I was by this time in the reading room which I liked very much I was the deputy there and I dealt with all the scholars and their work and so on and I wanted to write a a novel the theme was in my mind greatly Uh, like all my novels it was about somebody going back and wondering why their life had gone wrong and uh I found that I had to write that in four weeks of holiday. We had four weeks holiday and I wrote it in four weeks. And although I think it's not a bad novel, it's rather truncated. It's rather, you know, it's like a baby that isn't quite properly born. And I felt something was going wrong. And I knew also that uh, my work in the museum would grow as I was getting more senior there. And I really thought I've got to choose. It was a hard job because I had no pension, you see. If you're a civil servant, there's no contribution, so you get no pension. And I was then forty. Five, I suppose. I think so. 1955. No, I was 43. And I uh, resigned. <laughs> and I had 300 pounds in the world. I often wonder how I dared to do it. I went down to a cottage in the country. I'd never lived like that. We had outside loo and everything. However, it, it, luckily it was a very hot summer and I wrote out of doors. And I always try to write out of doors. I like writing out of doors. I don't feel claustrophobic. That's why I write abroad a lot now. I go in the winter and go to hot places and write. And uh, I wanted also to write a play. It was eventually put on the stage called The Mulberry Bush. And it was this I saw would take me a long time. And what happened was that the play was a failure. But I then wrote a novel called Anglo-Saxon Attitudes at the same time, which, which was a great, great success. success. So it was all right. It turned out Cinderella story, you know.
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know that's a long clip, so, but it's so wonderful, we, I mean, and it's not sped up. No, no, no. He, that's, that's, the, the, the how thing, are you do? I, I, I thought I was talking fast no, <laughs> be, that's High, that's,
1: yeah. high pitched, very fast, very short. Uh, immensely extraordinary hair. Everybody says, yes. you know, from from his early. <laughs> from his Mine's going of, in uh, that way, <laughs> actually. Yeah,
2: that's just me. Um,
1: <laughs> I, I mean, we we we've, we we will talk about Hemlock and the plot, but just to say the life, his life is it's um, a beautifully written life by Margaret Drabble. In the good. biography, is which good. is uh, it seems insanely large. Rachel said to me mm. this morning, "My God." How, why is it so big? I said, because I mean he lived. The man had an extraordinary life,
2: I think. Codebreaker?
0: Yes. So that, that alone is interesting. Well, let's let's just give you the, the posted biography. Yeah. Angus Wilson was born in Bexhill on sea in 1913. Uh, part of his childhood was spent in South Africa and he was then educated at his brother's school in Sussex Westminster School. Then he went to Oxford. Uh, he joined the staff of the British Museum Library in 1937. And he rose uh, to become superintendent of the British Museum reading room. (laughs) Uh, When the Second World War came, he helped towards the safe storage of the British Museum treasures before serving the rest of the war in naval intelligence, which even in 1991 when this was written, you couldn't say where that was. Bletchley Park. He was at Bletchley Park with Alan Turing. He was a great friend of Alan Turing's. Um, They didn't meet
2: at the time because there's about 10,000 people employed by Bletchley Park. They met afterwards uh, to meet your friends,
1: and then and there's a ridiculous story about him at Bletchley Park that he would take all his clothes off and run around the lake. Nobody's been able to (laughs) (laughs) verify verify, that.
0: And then after the war, he has a. I mean, Bletchley Park, as I've said, we were talking about that story Christmas Day in the workhouse. It comes over the bureau the most awful place to have to live and work. The pressure (laughs) and the bitching and the anyway, he, he so he has a. A period of depression and a near breakdown after the end of the Second World War. And it's in this period that he starts to write short stories. The first collection of which, The Wrong Set, is published in 1949. What is the fascinating thing about The Wrong Set? There are two fascinating things about it. Do you know what they are? Go on. It's discovered by Sonia uh, Orwell. Yeah. Oh, yes. Who yes. gives it to Sir Connolly? Yes. The second thing is he writes. The eight stories. I think there's eight stories, eight or nine stories in weekend. eight or nine weekends. Yeah, emerges fully for voices fully formed. Mm-hmm. Short stories don't sell, except these. Yeah, <laughs> they no. become a best-selling volume bit, of short stories. It was
1: and uh, and really, I mean, amazing reviews. Even the people like C.P. Snow who didn't like it. So you got that
2: <coughs> wonderful what, what description? C.P.
1: Snow. Yeah, part bizarre, part macabre, part savage. Part maudlin, there is nothing much like it upon the contemporary scene. It is rather as though a man of acute sensibility felt left out of the human party and was surveying it, half enviously, half contemptuously, from the corner of the room, determined to strip off the comfortable pretenses and show that this party is pretty horrifying after all. Sometimes the effect is too mad to be pleasant, sometimes most moving. No one could deny Mr. Wilson's gift.
0: Mm. Now, the wonderful thing about the stories are he then writes a second volume of short stories called Such Darling Dodos, and then, as you've just heard him talking about, he writes Hemlock and After. And Hemlock and After is recognisably an expansion on the type of characters you meet in the short stories, as then in turn Anglo-Saxon Attitudes' his next novel is an expansion, it seems there's, to me, on Hemlock and After. A, yeah, the title story of Such Darling Dodos mm. is almost,
1: you almost feel it's in embryo, the the novels what you feel is into this tiny story there's a whole novel totally realized characters generational
0: conflict very very funny but also very vicious well this is the thing dick and i want to ask you before we move on to talking specifically about him looking after what you are the characteristics of the wilson voice that expresses itself in those in these early stories and novels what are the the kind of the things that would strike the first-time reader, do you think?
2: It's a certain uh, attention to Englishness and what makes the English character particularly unique and a daring observational level of wanting to get under the skin of these people that that, that don't like being analysed at all. People who don't, people who don't like being analysed are being analysed. But also so when we talk about post-war, in terms of Englishness, we have the idea of... Um, the middle classes who basically voted to have less privileges because of the first Labour government which came in at the end of the war, the first full Labour government ever to have a full term, which were voted for a lot of middle-class liberals who were voting a lot of pre-war privileges mm-hmm. out of their own lives. Isn't that amazing? A kind of mm. big sacrifice. Major. Uh, you can't underestimate this. Uh, I mean, a uh, tectonic shift, uh, yeah.
1: isn't there, in the middle of the 20th century and in this so, British so culture?
2: it's but not just middle-class Englishness, it's liberal... Slightly lefty liberal, let's face it, middle classness. But just that, that terrible sense of trying to do the right thing, but whilst also realizing that the old world has definitely
0: gone for good. I, I think the, the voice that you get here with Wilson is also, as John says, it's, I think the word I used to you when we were just talking about it was nasty. Yeah. Right. They're not, oh. he, he is a humanist writer, but he is very able to, to, to look hard at right. the man's inhumanity to everyone.
2: <laughs> I think in particular, uh, we can jump ahead a little bit to his pupil, Ian McEwan, who was yeah. uh, his own, he was a direct pupil of his creative writing option. Just have to be careful because Ian McEwan has spent a lot of his, his life explaining that he wasn't on a creative writing course. He was on a creative writing option on the MA English course at UEA in about 1970. And he was the only pupil which took this, this, this option. And since then, that was the very first Degree level creative writing work, you know, ever. And Ian McEwan's early short stories are very yeah. similar to the short stories of Angus Wilson in that kind of vicious, macabre, um, bleak, slightly disturbing look at English life.
0: You, Raspberry jam, which is the, Raspberry the jam, the could most be an e- yeah. story in the wrong set. It
2: could be an Ian McEwan story. I think, think? in terms now, of th- yeah.
0: th- here's here's a clip of Wilson talking about. The sources of inspiration and what he felt he was writing about. Where do you get your stimulus as a writer from?
3: Well, I live in rather remote country. I live on the edge of a wood and uh, there I have long periods of great solitude, but I do in fact uh, teach one term a year at the university where I meet a lot of young people. And in the periods when I'm not um, uh, at home. I come to London or I go to abroad a great deal. i just spent two months in Venice and there I bombard myself with people and always new kinds of people. I passionately enjoy being plunged into a totally new world and involving myself. Architecture at the moment is my great thing. I can't stop wanting to talk to architects and read about architecture. So my life is divided between uh, uh, absolute quiet and the total noise of a cocktail party. And my attempt in my books is somehow to, to find the meeting point between the sense that everybody has of, of their total alienation and solitariness and their other sense that they have of being nobody in the room of thousands of somebodies.
0: That's one of the greatest oh, descriptions of somebody's own work I've ever heard, That 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 the gap between... How you think of yourself and how you think of everybody else—that's wonderful. I mean,
1: we should say he's a bloody marvellous critic, as much as anything, and he's so good about his own work. As mm. well. I mean, we're, we're, well,
0: here we go. Let, go, go is, for the blurb. We need to know about Hemlock is, and I'm After. I'm going to read you the blurb from a 1971 republication of Hemlock and After, and we've all checked attribution. We've all thought, well, can we attribute this to Wilson himself? And we all feel that this has certain hallmarks of a blurb written by the author. Mm. So, this will describe the milieu of the book for you. Famous and deservedly successful, so appeared Bernard Sands in the eyes of English society. Novelist, publicist, supporter of the underdog, liberal humanist and Democrat, Sands' career had been a splendid one. And now, in the maturity of his years, he had crowned it by arranging that Varden Hall, a fine 18th century estate in the home counties, should be financed from government sources as a home for young writers. But Bernard is plagued not only by a neurasthenic wife and a fundamental contradiction... Yes, neurasthenic. No-one in the marketing department used the word neurasthenic, did they? (laughs) Bernard is plagued not only by a neurasthenic wife and a fundamental contradiction in his own character, but by enemies and fake friends in many quarters. There is Mrs Curry... (laughs) The yeah. fat and voluptuous lady whom he has deprived of Varden Hall, which she had wanted to buy and use for her particular and peculiar business purposes. There is Sherman Winter, about whom do you wish to speak, I believe, the theatrical producer, waspishly jealous of Bernard's ability to win the affection of the young. The local Varden society, too, is ambivalent in its views of Bernard. His spinster sister, Isabel, blames him for not sharing her interest in the Communist Party while his son, a snobbish young barrister, and daughter-in-law, Sonia, are annoyed by his failure to follow the right, that is, the Tory line. In his portraits of these and the other subsidiary characters, Mr Wilson excels. He displays them with compassion, certainly, but with quite uncompromising frankness. They brilliantly illustrate the foibles and hypocrisies of middle-class society and form the perfect background to the novel's main theme, What is that theme? (laughs) It is the contradiction between the need for authority and the distaste for power, which is here exemplified in the conflicts and uncertainties which beset Bernard Sands and bring about his death. And as a corollary to this, it is the choice between fighting cruelty and falsehood by passive resistance, the way chosen by Sands himself, or by direct action like his widow. This... (laughs) Is the vital oh, dilemma. I know, right? There's the spoiler. <laughs> a whole novel, there. eh? This is the vital dilemma which Mr. Wilson states in a novel whose surface brilliance never obscures its power and originality. Now I know that's not the most blockbusterish of descriptions.
1: It is a really original book. He said about it, which I, I love. What I like about the book is that it has this strange sort of primitivism and at the same time of sophistication, and that I was too naive to be able to marry them. And so it makes a very odd book, a book in which all sorts of different modes are present on the same page. Mrs. Curry, who is totally Gothic, Bernard Sands, who could come out of Gide, Ella Sands, whose extreme and sometimes unexplicable neuroticism and withdrawal might suggest
0: Dostoevsky, and so on. And it is true. This is hilarious, considering his position at UEA. He describes it as a book to end all writer's schools. All writer's schools. I and I rather that. love it for that reason. Yeah. Dickon, could you read us a little bit of your choosing?
2: Mm. Well, I'm fascinated with the idea of writing about uh, gay lives in the past, which was alone incredibly daring. I think we, we can't underestimate this, that in 1951 it was basically illegal to be gay still. So writing a, a mainstream novel, he was openly gay himself, Angus Wilson, and he was sort of quite...
1: There was a photograph, a famous photograph in, in Vogue, or wasn't there, of where he was presented as a kind of a man living with his, yes. his longtime lover, Tony Garrett, yes. and they were drinking a gin and tonic. Tony had to resign in the yes. end. He resigned his from job. The, his job in the probation the, service yeah. because yeah. of yeah. Uh, village gossip, which is uh, village gossip being a huge theme in this book.
2: And so the, he he, put, he portrays gay men at a time when it's still illegal to be a gay man, essentially, which I think is a, an amazing thing about this book. He then goes on to to tell you how some gay men are different to others, and some are more openly camp, and some are more respectable and amusing, is in inverted commas, and others are vicious spivs. I love the uh, the nineteen fifties uh, slang spivs, butterfly spivs, Sherman Winter. Already, the name is already probably a, a giveaway. He is one of the uh, the more spiv-based gay men in it, but then Wilson kind of gives you an idea for why people are, might be like this. He says Sherman Winter had fallen into a conventional, caricatured pansy manner when he was quite young, and finding it convenient, had never bothered to get out of it. He had more to do with his energies than to use them up on external personality. <laughs> That's what I love the the manner too fitted well with his neither striking nor unpleasant pink face his receding fair hair and willowy shape which all passed unnoticed in the world he frequented people judged him to have the accepted hard surface and the accepted golden if limitedly golden heart of his type this too was convenient. So what Wilson is doing there is telling us about how stereotypes happen in human behaviour and why they appeal to some people as a kind of defensive habit and a shield. And as he says, it's a, he had more to do with his energies than to use them up on external personality. It's, it's hard work not being camp for some people. So this is fascinating. He's ex, not just saying here's a camp gay man, but this is why he might be the way he is. Crucial plot point in the novel,
1: Bernard Sands is setting up this writer's retreat and he's you know he's a, an establishment figure, and he's pulled all the strings, and he's managed to see off the the national trust. Who, <laughs> but he's being watched all the time by this Mrs. Curry, who's got to be one of the great characters in 20th century. She's fiction. He based her on a oh, on a real person. Oh dear, he based her on a real person. He says, imagine a starting point for Hemlock, a neighbour just down the road in Little Haddam, who said to him. I'm getting to know all your little movements, dear. <laughs> a remark which precipitated what he describes as a novel of fear and conscience. But Bernard is this establishment figure who has a double life mm. Mm. and he has an, an, a very nice young boy, Eric, who, uh, who he's very fond of and he also has Terence, who's a sort of slightly older, I think he's only 28, but slightly older, more, more worldly wise, former boyfriend former yeah. boyfriend yeah. and the crucial moment is a, 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 he watches a scene in Leicester square of a man being picked up for importuning. yes and uh again br- br- i mean it's so brave to do this at the time not only the scene this is not this is not kind of high minded this is this is down on the street getting done for importuning. and he finds the violence of it quite arousing and this yeah. shocks him deeply about about who he is he's he's a man who's got to he's been a successful writer but he's he acknowledges that his wife has had a, a a fairly major mental breakdown i have to say the portrait of her of her inner life i think is is one of the best it's quite strong, brilliant isn't it strongest yes, I thing absolutely agree. as a p- presentation of depression
2: it's really nuanced and original i think as well
1: really really and and you know but that that moment a breakdown
2: he had yeah. hit
1: a massive but that moment is where the book changes and mm. uh, somehow out of that darkness he
0: constructs the scene of the opening of the writer's centre. yes it's well so- i would like to i would like to um, talk a bit more about this idea of wilson writing about the lives of gay people in this era and also Wilson writing about women Women. in this era. We have another clip of Wilson talking here about those very things.
3: What I did, and I'm I'm proud of this, I'm glad to have the opportunity to say it, I was able to be the first person, I think, to treat... Homosexual people as though they were part of the rest of the community. Up to that time, there had been what you might call, you know, novels, which everyone said, ah, that's about them. Uh, But this was my hero, and he was just one of the figures with all the other people, and this was about homosexuality and I think it was a very important moment it was well received although there were some you oh, know yes. but it was well received and I think it was good because it meant that people suddenly saw yes oh, so, of course it's like, that's like Jimmy isn't it or that's like well, Bobby you know it do was you part think of you, life do you think you removed some of the taboos with Hemlock and After I hope so I very much hope so I didn't return to it as the sole theme because I think it's a bit boring this pushing yes. and pushing but, yes. but it occurs in most of my novels and because I had had experience of it as a young man in the days when this was, uh, well, it was against the law when I wrote that novel, indeed, and until much later. I don't awfully like, inverted commas, gay literature. I I think this is a pity. I don't like any kind of literature which is marked off as something quite separate. Uh, I think myself that I have brought a kind of perception about women, which is rare from a man-writer.
0: Now, I think that is a very interesting... That interview is done in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. So he's talking about a novel that he had written 30 years previously. Mm. Opinion is divided about Wilson's attitude to women. I must say, I think the depiction of Ella's mental state in this novel, as you were both saying, is truly groundbreaking. But I wonder, Dick, um he said there he doesn't like gay mm. novels, gay writing, but he was also a tremendous defender of certain um, nascent gay institutions, wasn't he? In
2: 1985, after he'd been knighted, as, and he was the first openly gay man to receive a knighthood, which is a fact which I think Amazing. more people need to know about. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know And that. it's a That's key to bad. his importance, full we'll stop, I think. But in 1985, uh, he, the same government, uh, the Thatcher government, their customs and size squad uh, raided the gay bookshop, Gaze the Word, yeah. in London, and seized a huge amount of books. And they, there was a quite a well-publicised case at the time. The, basically, the shop was nearly closed down; it was threatened with obscenity. And uh, um, in 1985, in, and we've, and the, of course, we've got AIDS coming out here as well. So we've mm. got a kind of beginning of the AIDS paranoia in, in Britain. And Angus Wilson wrote this angry statement about the raid, where he said that. Um, it is intolerable that officials should have such wide-ranging powers of indiscriminate seizure of books. It is even more intolerable that those powers should be exercised. So Mm. even though he says he he doesn't write gay books, he nevertheless was very much an advocate of gay rights. He was an early person to uh, get involved with the campaign for homosexual equality Mm. in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And it didn't actually have an effect until 1967.
0: We we should also say gay is the word, of course, and Still there, still it's just celebrating his yeah. 40th birthday. 40 Wilson. years. Absolutely and brilliant, you were saying, if you go in, yes. they, that statement of Wilson they have it, is in their defence.
2: They have it on a bit of paper and they will show it to you. they're marvellous. Because they're really proud. He, he did the decent thing, like an Angus Wilson character. Yeah. The
0: short just. stories are full of, as you were identifying then, mm. different types of gay, gay man. Yes, yes. Some of whom, uh, this is one of the things I find so fascinating, Anglo-Saxon Attitudes, the novel that follows Hemlock and After has a variety of almost at the Julian and Sandy uh, oh, end of yes. portraits of the gay vin- men which had a heterosexual writer produce them. Yes. You might suspect well Malice.
2: Well, uh, can I read another part? from the, uh, Yes, the, uh, the, there's a party scene, a kind of uh, literary salon or just a kind of London uh, party scene uh, hosted by a woman called Evelyn, who is a kind of 1920s survivor. And Burnett Sands, the main character in Hemlock and After, goes to this party. And he goes there with his old boyfriend Terence and he talks to the people of his own age and slightly older, who are from the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, who are kind of a, a kind of Oscar Wilde style, feat, aesthetic style of 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 campness. But then, uh, as Terence says, he uh, he slips away to join in what uh, Wilson describes as the languorous but staccato gossip of the Golden Spiv group. <laughs> <laughs> These are the younger gay guys. Like many of the things which teased Terence in Burnett's behaviour, he attributed his refusal to ignore the camp end of. The room to sentimentalism. He supposed that since Bernard knew many of these beautiful young men to depend upon their wits and their social success to maintain themselves, he thought himself obliged to lend them his support as a brother homosexual. Having himself at last, after great struggle, almost succeeded in leaving the golden spiv world behind. Terence did not realise that it still possessed great great attractions for so comparative a newcomer as Bernard. That's a reference to the fact that Bernard has sort of come out, as it were, quite late in life. He's had a wife and children, and now he's had quite openly gay affairs. So you have this party where Bernard Sands is moving, physically moving, between these two groups of gay men, older and younger. Uh, The Spivs are the younger ones, and they're more overtly, viciously bitchy in camp. And the older ones are a bit more Fabankian, a bit more Waldian, a bit more uh, effete and amusing in inverted commas. That's that's his phrase. Um, And he describes it wonderfully. He says that um, uh, Evelyn, who's the hostess, completely so she assumed or often actually was in total ignorance of this gap. It grew yearly. And with each year, the queer, more louche, more cosmopolitan element drove out like the tough tree rats whose grace disguises them as grey squirrels. (laughs) <laughs> the older, more effete, more established, more indigenous fauna If it lasted a few years longer, thought Bernard Terence would be scuttling over the side with the rest of the old order <laughs> He himself would remain to make havoc with the destructive invaders It was, after all, only a question of which kind of rat you preferred to be He decided bitterly so oh,
1: that's so good, and it's and brilliant. So, and that, that, that's the point is he, the change in the book is when Bernard has this kind of moment. That's
2: before he has a nervous breakdown, and, by the that, way. That's
1: funny. That's, and he, he's kind of skating between all these different worlds. Old. And there's also
0: a tremendous set piece in Henry. Oh, in Harvard, I mean, on where, where, <laughs> uh, as a writer, Petronius, as I think. A writer, you've got the sense mm. that once he launches into this enormous, ghastly village fate stroke launch event. For the hall, and a writer who is who has been holding <laughs> themselves ready to then yes. just—he
1: has one job. Off. He has one job.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so uh, good,
1: and it's so good, it's so funny, and it's so dark, and it's 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 it just as a piece of bravura writing that that I mean the village speech Bernard has to what they what does it say uh, a clear humorous high-minded speech from Bernard would have saved the occasion. Well, reader. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That isn't what they get.
2: No.
0: There is a interesting contrast in this novel between how Wilson appears to feel about the ghastly Mrs. Curry and, on the other hand, how he feels about a character that it would be much harder to treat in modern fiction, mm. which is the paedophile yeah. character. Yeah, I mean... Do you think that's one of the reasons why the book is—it's I, I, not ignored. Ignored isn't right, but there is an element around Hubert, around that character, which I think probably would strike the modern eye as being quite—he's compassionate. He, it's compassionate.
1: Than, I mean, but he—I think the only character I feel in this book that doesn't get much compassion is Sonia, the wife of his, the, son. the wife of his son. Yeah. But the whole book is about Bernard having fucked up his children, <laughs> yeah, and his guilt about having done that, and having poor relationship with his children. And through almost all his fiction, his genius is for—I mean, I say—we're talking about *Late Core, which is about a. A, 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 a woman, a working class woman who ran a hotel and she's given the inner life, rather like Faulkner, of a huge Shakespearean kind of, of range of emotion. He's pretty brilliant at, at inhabiting mm. different consciousnesses and make them. And I think Hubert Rose, the, the paedophile in this book, is,
0: yeah, there's a lot of compassion. Well, the last thing I think we should talk about is... Um, why is he not more... Why is he not read? But, but before we get on to that, we should also just say that that... Along with Malcolm Bradbury, Angus Wilson had a huge effect on the cultural life of this country, on and on the on the development of fiction in this country, by being one of the founders, as you said, of the creative writing option. It was an option. I think it became a university course of East it's, Anglia.
2: That's what McEwen always likes to remind
0: people. And McEwan published a novel in 2012 called Sweet Tooth, which is a quite peculiar combination of a spy novel and yeah. a literary memoir yeah and he's in it isn't he really yeah yeah and i'm just going to read you a tiny bit because angus wilson makes a cameo mm. uh, in ian McEwan's novel so you the year is 1972 the heroine serena frome is being um briefed about setting up uh, a scheme for mi5 and uh She suggests, wouldn't it be possible to simply make some friendly recommendations to the, uh, I don't know, you know, the government department that hands out money to artists? The Arts Council? Nothing let out, a pantomime shout of a bitter laugh. Everyone else was grinning. My dear girl, I envy your innocence. But you're right, it should have been possible. It's a novelist in charge of the literature section, Angus Wilson. Know of him? Mm -hmm. On paper, just the sort we could have worked with. Member of the Athenaeum, naval attache in the war, worked on secret stuff in the famous Hut 8 on the, uh, well, I'm not allowed to say. (laughs) I took him to lunch, then saw him a week later in his office. I started to explain what I wanted. Do you know, Miss Frome, he all but threw me out of a third-floor window. One moment he was behind his desk... Nice white linen suit, lavender bow tie. I should have worn my white linen suit. I've got two. <laughs> Clever jokes. <laughs> the next, his face was puce, and he had hold of my lapels and was pushing me out of his office. What he said, I can't repeat in front of the lady, and camp as a tent pen. God knows how they let him over naval codes in 42. <laughs> I mean, that's so that's McEwen writing a burlesque of what um, Wilson was like, who he knew. But he who also, McEwen like? tells a brilliant story about... Um, handing over an early short story to his tutor, Angus Wilson, and Angus Wilson handing it back and saying, well, I think the story is rather good, but I'm afraid it's rather homophobic. Mm. And McEwan says, it had never occurred to me that it was homophobic, but I saw that Angus was right. And in that gesture, he changed my writing, but also how I saw the world. And by example, he re-educated me about the role of gay people with whom I had had very little contact up to that point. Wilson does ten years at UEA. Do you know who replaces him directly? No. Yeah. Angela Carter. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's handing the baton yes, on, sure. even though as writers... Which he was, different very, from very, oh, he was
1: very generous. He reviewed, he reviewed Angela Carter's, uh, one of her novels, very generously. Why, why, why is there a problem with Angus Wilson? Why is he not? Well, why, why is, uh, for the 50s novelists who we admire and love, Kingsley Amis, M- Muriel Spark... All of them. Iris Murdoch. <laughs> all
0: of them. Well, we'll come on to it. Oh, we've got one more clip. This is Wilson talking to Joan Bakewell in the late
3: 1960s. You teach um, great figures of our literature, Dickens and Kipling, as you Mm -hmm. say, Virginia Woolf. Does posterity matter to you? Oh, yes, I must say it does. I would love to have large sales, but I don't. But uh, I've always been interested in the novel and I teach the novel, so I see the novel as I was trained as a historian. I see it as a kind of historical succession, that something for me represents our culture. And I'd love to think that I would be a name on a, um, in a page, at any rate, in the literary history of the future, and that there would be people who enjoyed some of my novels. That's we very do. poignant, I think. We, it, can, we, we have
0: yeah. a great theory about he, why he is
2: not... He accepted the honours when he should have turned them down. He accepted the CBE and the knighthood because he was a a gay campaigner and he he paid the price for this by being uncool because to accept these things is to be uncool. He was never cool. Like Joe Orton and William Burroughs, those are cool authors, gay authors, because they're outlaw gays. He was never an outlaw gay. He was an establishment gay. He was an establishment gay. And I think that's kind of what scuppered him. Really. He also
0: has the misfortune. He has a twin misfortune. It's perceived that his 60s and 70s novels take on board a rather self-conscious experimentalism. Oh, he's trying to hide. Jonathan Raven says he catches from UEA. Although okay. so that's the first thing. The second thing is he has the misfortune to lose his fashionability, mm. in the era of Martin Amis, mm. Barnes, McEwen to some extent, Rushdie, mm. where the, the venerated older writers are the Americans and Nabokov. Mm. It's
2: funny, it? for all his, his campaigning, literal campaigning for, for homosexual equality, he was seen to be part of the establishment and part of uh, the old guard. It's funny. He've,
1: he kind of opened the way for the angry young men, for social realist novels of, uh, of the nineteen 19- Sixties, In the end of the sixties, I think he writes too. I think Late Call, which is sort of mid-sixties, and, and No Laughing Matter, they're masterpieces. And you name the numbers of books that have been set in new towns, English mm. novels that have been set in new towns, mm. which is where, where yeah. Late Call is. He's always pushing himself. No Laughing Matter, it's an amazing novel of the twentieth century. It goes from nineteen nineteen to nineteen sixty-seven. There's the sense. Already, though, he lives quite a long time. He lives to watch his own downfall. He's famously thin-skinned. Mm. There are two yeah. things that stand out. He, you know, the, when he's the Booker judge in, oh, in, 70, got in, in 75, oh. where he, he basically gives a, a really ill-judged speech where he...
2: <laughs> like, he, like, he like his own like, character. Yeah, <laughs> he
1: prepares a speech in which he attacks the NW3 middle-brown novel, speaks of the dislike of, of, of the smart icy winds around Hampstead Pond and the tedious subject matter of rows looming between estranged NW parents, both working in the media and advertising so he goes off on one and then there's an obvious froideur in the room and he's told by various friends that some people haven't liked the speech including claire Tomlin, who it's not clear whether she'd like the speech or not but she, he loses his rag and shouts at her yes. and he gets the reputation for being difficult and thin-skinned so he becomes almost a sort of self-parody of mm. the older forgotten thin-skinned writer The thing that I can't understand, various people have tried to republish
0: him Mm. and it's
1: never quite stuck.
0: John, you were talking about the 60s. I think the short stories uh, of this era and Hemlock and After have so many things that we associate with the literature that was to follow 10, 15 years later. But Wilson is the wrong class and sexuality By the early 1960s to fit in with that gang. It's room at the top. It's very working class and heterosexual. It's great. It's very very Um,
1: male, very, quite macho. And
0: finding Wilson now and reading. And he's not a woman, so he doesn't get the Virago bonus. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) True. Dick, and again, thank you for choosing the book because for me, this really feels like an important book to try and put in front of people again. There are problems with it. I think it is, to use Wilson's words, it's congested. There's too much trying to get out of quite a short book. Mm. But at the same time, it has so many things, and certainly we've concentrated on it in this episode for a good reason, but certainly the depiction of um, the very brave, accurate, and funny depictions of different types of gay life in these stories and in these novels... Need needs to be revisited, in my opinion.
1: Comic set pieces and a wonderful ending, a Dickensian ending, as he said, where he sorts all the
2: pieces on the board out.
0: And and why do you think we need to read Angus Wilson now?
2: He is the missing piece in the story of uh, Gay Lives in Britain, which was focused on a couple of years ago with the anniversary of the of decriminalisation, uh, you know, 2017, 1967. If you, if you read Lucky Jim or any other 1950s novel and you think, well, where are the gay people? Here they are, Hemlock and After. And if you want to go and see, want to just pay him your respects, go to the British Library today. In Humanities One, in the reading room, you don't even have to have a pass. Just opposite the, the, uh, the security desk, there's a painting of Angus Wilson. Hundreds of people walk past all the time. I wonder if they know who he is.
1: Please read, read, read Angus Wilson. I feel as passionate as I did 30 years ago when Tim Waterstone first gave me late call.
2: But that's all we've got time for.
1: Huge thanks to Dickon, to our super smart producer, Nikki Birch, and to our civilised distingué even, sponsor, Unbound.
0: You can download all 84 Backlisted episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading on our website, backlisted.fm. And, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter, Facebook and Boundless. And if you feel so moved, don't be shy. Sprinkle stars upon us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever else you cast out for pods. Meet you here in a fortnight. (laughs) It's been a Cinderella story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.